We are in our second week of three in our series, this little mini-series on giving. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to pages six and seven. There it's got the, the scriptures that we're, that we're going to be looking at, um, as well as a place to take notes. Um, because we've got so many verses in different places, what I'm going to do is instead of reading all the verses now, I'm going to read them as we come to them in, uh, in the sermon. And so we're going to look at them in a, in a particular order. Um, but we're going to be, t- we're, we're talking about a life of stewardship, you know, and in this, in this sermon, we're going to be dealing with the issue. What does scripture say about giving? Uh, and I want to ask the question, you know, do I have to, or do I want to give? Right. I think this is a question that a lot of people struggle with. You know, when it comes to giving, is this one of those things where can I just give freely when I, when I want and how much I want? Or is there, do I have to give? What do I do if I don't want to give? How do I get to the place where I might want to give if that's what God wants? How do I work those things together? Really, that's the question. And what's, what's great, what's amazing for me is that as we look at this question, is it do I have to or is it do I want to? we are going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus has done for us come alive in incredible, incredible ways. You are going to understand things about the gospel that maybe, I, I, my guess is that many of you have never understood before, have never understood before. And so that makes me excited. This is going to challenge all of us, both Christians and non, because I think we're going to talk about some of these things in ways that, uh, that just highlight the good news of Jesus. Okay, and so I'm excited. We're going to look at this in three points. If you want to take notes, I'll give them to you now, and then we'll come back to them as we hit them in the sermon. Our three points today are, first, old law versus new grace. Second, Old Testament versus New Testament. And then third, old old religion versus new relationship. Okay, so old law versus new grace. Old Testament versus New Testament, old religion versus new relationship. As we see these contrasts, I think we're going to be surprised and excited. So first, old law versus new grace. The relationship between law and grace is something that everybody has to understand. Um, You can't have Christianity. You can't have God without understanding this relationship. Okay, I think all of us know and all of us would say that the law needs grace, right? The law is kind of the, the rules, the commandments, the, the justice, the holding your feet to the fire, the giving an account sort of side of things. And grace is forgiveness. It's understanding. It's compassion, right? And all of us, I think, would say it's almost the heartbeat of Christianity to say that the law needs grace. I mean, that's why Jesus came. Okay, because we've all failed to obey the law. We've all failed to live up to God's perfect standard. All of us have. I mean, without any doubt. And so we all need grace. We need God's grace. That's what Christianity is about. We need a chance sometimes to start over. We need to know that we're forgiven. I mean, this really separates Christianity from, I think, every other religion in the world. Because it acknowledges that I can say without fear... I am not good enough, and yet God loves fallen people. God loves and is gracious toward people who don't live up to his standards. I mean, that is, that's the heart of Christianity. Romans 13, verse 8, 
that second passage there. Uh, it says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And what we see there is that there's a relationship. You can't actually keep the law without love. Okay, so the law needs grace. Without grace, you cannot keep the law. Okay, and when you are loving, like loving is the expression of the law. So the law without grace is not really an accurate reflection of God's requirements. Does that make sense? If you try to obey the law but don't have love, you don't actually fulfill the law. Okay, so the law needs grace. But grace also needs the law. Okay, the law needs grace. Grace also, though, needs the law. Why? Well, because without it, grace is blind. Without the law, grace is blind. Okay? Without knowing what we're supposed to do, we're just guessing at what love looks like. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, St. Augustine said this. He says, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of people. That is what love looks like. And it's interesting, right? Because what what, what St. Augustine is saying here is that grace, the feelings, the emotions of love, they they can be blind. You may not know what to do to show love. The law tells us what love looks like. Okay, the law shows us how to love. As I was thinking about this, um, my mind drifted to uh, Amazon wish lists. Anybody familiar with these? Amazon.com has done something that I think has revolutionized the Internet in terms of commerce. They have these wish lists on Amazon. You go in, you log in, and literally anything that you want from anything that they sell, you know, and they sell so much more than books, you can say, when you, you pull it up and you can say, add this to my wish list. And you can have hundreds and hundreds of things on your wish list, um, which is interesting. You know, they actually have a, a list now where you can go to other websites you know, that, are, that have nothing to do with Amazon, and you can, it's, all, it's called a universal wish list. So not just Amazon, but you can go anywhere on any website, find something you want to buy, even if it's not from Amazon, and put it on an Amazon wish list, right? This has absolutely revolutionized the way that gift giving is done in our family. Okay? Do you ever have the experience of someone's birthday's coming up or Christmas is coming and you just don't know what to get? Right? I mean, and, and sometimes, well, it can be hard even with a spouse, with a child, with a parent, but then you think about extended, right? What do you do with your cousins? Right? If you buy gifts for them, what do you do with other members, aunts, uncles? How in the world do you know what they want? Right? You have no idea. I mean, and, and we've had this experience where you know, we buy things and then, and then you kind of look like, is it, is it in the house the next time you visit? Right? Did they actually use it? Have they ever talked about it? You know, or you see it that it's like hidden and, you know, I mean, you, you kind of understand like without what the Amazon wish list has done is it has revolutionized for us because we now know exactly what everybody wants and the joy level, the enthusiasm level, the anticipation even because people in our family now know they're going to get something that they want, right? 
They're going to get what they want, and we know that we're going to give them something that they want. And we can even decide, okay, well, I'm only going to get, because you can prioritize on this thing. This is the highest priority. This is medium, and I really, this is low. Like, you know, this is, if you're going to buy me something. And, I mean, you can do all this stuff. And so we know now exactly how to buy gifts in our family. And it's great. We have some members of our family who refuse to use the wish list. And it frustrates us to no end because we don't know what to get them. And we kind of just sort of fumble around, and we end up buying gifts that we think that never get used. And, ah, you know. So, all right. Why am I saying all this? Well, because... The law is like God's wish list. Okay? Love is blind. We don't know always how to show love to someone else. We don't know what kind of gifts to get someone else. God is saying, look, I don't want you to be confused. I want you to know exactly how you can love me back. I want you to know exactly the kinds of things that you can do that bring joy to my heart, that bring a smile to my face when I see you do them. That's what the law is. It shows us what he wants from us. And that's why 1 John 5.3, it says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. It's when we walk in his word, when we follow his laws, that we bring delight, we bring joy to the heart of God. So without the law, grace is blind, then there's another piece of this. Without the law, grace is also burdened. Burdened. And I think this happens sometimes, well, at least this has happened for me, um, with giving. When we talk about giving and with our money, um, when there's no number, you know, when we don't know that, okay, if we don't say, you know what, God doesn't say to give 10%. God just says he leaves it up to you. And you have to decide how much you're going to give. And it's entirely up to you. There are times where that can feel like on the, on the outside, it might think, oh, you're, I'm, I'm feeling freed from the law because there's now no number that I have to get to. But at least I've experienced that sometimes a lack of law in this area makes me feel like no matter what I do, it's never enough. Have you ever felt that way before? It's like, you know what? I give this and then I give this and it just never feels like we're ever giving enough. And so sometimes the law is designed to actually take off the burden so that we'll know when we have done what God asks us to do. And so without the law, sometimes grace can feel like a burden. It's interesting because sometimes a lack, of, a lack of a law in this area feels like a law. <laughs> you know, because you just feel like, well, the standard is really 100%, right? And if you don't give everything or if you have a frappuccino at Starbucks, or if you have an extra cup of coffee, or, an ex, you know, that's like, well, maybe I shouldn't do, you know, we feel that way, and it begins to feel like a burden, like a law, like, without a law. And so, again, God sometimes gives us the law so that we'll know exactly what he expects. Because sometimes without the law, grace um, can feel like a burden. All right, so, but, so it's interesting that, <clears throat> so grace needs the law, but the other thing that gets really, I think, transformative to me is that grace then ends up transforming the law, okay? Grace transforms the law, okay? What do I mean by this? Well, when you experience God's grace, when you believe in Jesus, when you put your faith in him, we experience Jesus' work for us, and we experience Jesus' work in us, Okay? What does that mean? Well, the grace of Jesus for us 
pays for our sins and makes us righteous in the sight of God. Okay? He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And because of him, we put our faith in him, God cleanses us from our sins and counts us righteous in his sight and adopts us into his family. That is the work of Jesus for every believer. If you believe in him, that is what Jesus has done for you. Right? That's good news. It's justification. It's adoption. These are the things that make us right with God, establish a relationship with him, and give us assurance. And, There's something even more to it. There is grace from Jesus that works in us that makes us new people. Okay, some of you understand this. Some of you have heard this. I want to flesh this out because it it impacts how we see the law. The grace of Jesus in us makes us new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anybody believes in Jesus, he is a new creation. The old self has passed away Behold, the new self has come. Okay, that means that when you believe in Jesus, something happens to you. You become different. You become a new creature. Your old self passes away, and you're, you, you, are, you are brought forth a new self. Romans 6 talks about it by saying that our old self died with Jesus in his death, But then we have been raised with Jesus and we are now a new self. God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new mind. He changes who we are. Okay? The work of Jesus in us makes us different. Okay? And let me be really clear. This is not how things ought to be in your life. This is how things are when you believe in Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? For me to tell you that if you believe in Jesus, your old self died with him. I'm not saying that your old self really should be dead with him, so stop sinning. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul says in Romans 6. Paul says if you believe in Jesus and you're united to him, your old self died. Not ought to have died, but died. And you have been raised from the dead. It's a a metaphor, but it's real. Okay, it's a picture. Death and resurrection is a picture of the transformation that happens to Christians. This is the work that Jesus does in us. Okay, he changes us and makes us new. And this is a huge part of the good news. Because if you want to grow, if you want to learn how to follow God, if you want your life to begin to experience more and more of God's healing, you need this work inside of you. You need this work of Jesus in you. Okay, now what this does is this sets up a totally new relationship between Christians and the law. Okay, there's a new way to understand what God makes us and what God tells us to do. Okay, what do I mean? First John 5, 3, this doesn't say, it doesn't say this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments shouldn't be a burden. Okay. It doesn't say his commandments shouldn't be a burden. What does it say? They are not a burden. They are not burdensome. That's the power that Jesus works in us. When we feel like the commandments are a burden, when we feel like the law is a burden, it's because we are not actually experiencing our union with Jesus. We're not walking in the fullness of the riches of God's blessings in our life. Okay, 
if you, and this is why we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves. I have to remind myself, wait a second, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Right now, I'm feeling pretty much in love with my sin. Um, I want to do this thing that I shouldn't do. And I don't love God's law. It feels like a burden right now because it's, it's speaking to me and telling me not to do this and I don't want to obey it. And, and so what do I do at that moment? Well, literally what I do is I say, okay, wait a second. I'm united to Christ. The part of me that wants to do what's wrong died with him. I have been raised with Jesus. I have been raised to new life. I actually, the new heart in me loves God's law. It loves what he wants for me. It hates to do the sinful thing. It hates to do what's wrong. And as I remind myself of that, a desire, a love for God's law wells up in my heart when I think about that, when I preach that good news to myself that I'm dead and have been raised to new life in Jesus. I'm united to him and power comes from God. It's the power of the resurrection that comes from him and fills me and it fills, it can fill you as well. And so, and then the commandments are not a burden. Then it's my delight to go skipping happily into the law of God. That is the transformation that Paul says has happened to you if you believe in Jesus. If you haven't experienced that kind of relationship to the law, then you need to, we need to go to the Lord. We need to ask him to help you understand. Paul has a whole prayer in Ephesians 1 where he just prays that you would understand this. He knows it's hard to understand. He knows it's hard to walk in sometimes. He has this whole prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 where he says, I just pray that you would understand this. I pray that you know the riches of your inheritance, that you know the hope of your calling, and that you would know the power that works in you. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. So if you're not feeling that, Pray. Pray that prayer in Ephesians 1, verse 20. Get with other folks, because sometimes we need the Christ and other people to, get, to kindle that flame in us. But that's, that's, what, that's what the good news ends up bringing us to when it comes to the law. What happens is, so here's the huge, I mean, that's huge. Just right there, that's huge. We could, uh, that's huge. But, so here, this is what happens then. When you come to grips with that reality, this is what happens to the law. The commands of scripture then actually teach us what the gospel does in our hearts. Okay? If you want to know what your new self looks like, you can read the law and find out. If the law says not to covet, then that means that God has made you into someone who does not covet by the power of Jesus in your life. Does that make sense? If the law says that um, you shouldn't murder, you know, Jesus says you shouldn't hate your brother, you shouldn't you know, be rude to other people as part of that co- commandment not to murder, that means that when Jesus saves you, he makes you into someone who doesn't murder. He makes you into someone by faith in him. His power at work in your life makes you into someone who doesn't give in to his or her anger. Okay, and so the law actually becomes, they become snapshots of what God has made you to be in Christ. Okay, again, I'm not saying what you ought to be in Christ. I'm saying who you are as a Christian. 
And then our effort is, our response is, man, if I don't see this in my life, I need to believe that this is true. It's a call to faith. It's a call to to believe that you have been transformed. Not because I say it's so, but because God in his word says that he has made you new. You are a new creature, a new creation if you are in Christ. I mean, amen. Amen and amen and amen and amen. So, pulling us back in as we talk about giving, the laws of giving in the Bible are part of this picture of our salvation. Okay? This is part of the portrait of who God has saved you to be. When you believe in Jesus, your heart changes about things. You have a new heart because God puts in you the power of Jesus and you want to honor him with your things. You want to follow after what he says is good for you. That's the desire of your heart. I know someone who went back and forth between not knowing what God wanted to, uh, to feeling like they never gave enough. You know, so they kind of were torn between these sorts of extremes where it's like on the one hand, they felt like, well, God just says, do what you want. And then on the other hand, they said, well, but I feel this compulsion to give, but I never feel like I give enough. You know, and they just sort of felt torn between those things. And as they came, it was like they were teeter-tottering back and forth between being blind and burdened. You know, blind and burdened. I don't know what God wants, or I think God wants everything. What do I do? And as they came to grips with this understanding, not just of what God says, but then their relationship to the law, it set them free. They said, you know what? Now I get it. And the laws of giving that are in Scripture, the commandments that God gives, have set me free. I went from, do I have to, to now, I really want to. That's good news. That's good news. So, old law versus new grace. Our second point is Old Testament versus New Testament. So, having said that the law is, 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 is part of, or is needed for grace, what is, which law applies like, what laws are we talking about here? You know, and, and some people say, like, I thought the Old Testament laws don't apply anymore, and I don't see 10% mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, so what gives? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we need to look at, really, the purpose of tithing. Okay, the purpose of the tithe. And we'll look uh, in the Old Testament, and these are passages that, that are there. Uh, in the Old Testament, the 10% tithe, it went to the Levites, Okay, that was the priestly family among all the 12 families that made up Israel. That was the priestly family. Numbers 18, verses 24 to 26, says, For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, ye shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution uh, from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So here we see that the tithe in Israel went to the Levites. Okay, It went to the Levites, the priests. And it's interesting too because the priests are also told that they too have to tithe. Okay, and so this isn't just a message on giving to you. This is also a message that I'm preaching to myself. 
Like the responsibility that you have is the same responsibility that I have in terms of giving. And so the 10% went to the Levites. And here's what's interesting is that Deuteronomy 14 tells us that the people brought their tithes during the festivals. So it was during the festival period um, that they brought their tithes. Deuteronomy 14 it says, and you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if it's too far for you, so that you can't carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you. So you get that. If your tithe is too big to carry, you know, maybe you don't have enough animals to carry it on, or you know, you're talking about the tithing of the crops, the tithing of the grains, you know, all this stuff. If you can't carry it all the way uh, to Jerusalem, basically is where it ended up. If it's too far for you, so you can't carry it, then, verse 25, you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place and then spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. You and your household. So this is interesting. So as the people brought, this is the, here's the picture. The people bring their tithes to Jerusalem to give it to the priests. And what the priests do is they take a portion of that tithe just right from the gate and they have a nationwide party. Amen. <laughs> this is a real party, right? You got oxen, you got sheep, and you have wine and strong drink. I mean, this is a real party. They're having a good time here. They're having a good time. So they take a portion of that and they have a national party, everyone together. And it's interesting. So this is almost like a picture. You know, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. It's like if you're not cheerful, then we need to get some wine and strong drink in you, and that will make you cheerful. Uh, but in addition to that, like this is a picture to me of God as a cheerful receiver. God says, hallelujah, let's, let's celebrate. You are bringing honor to me and glory to me because you are offering me the first fruits. You are declaring that everything that you have comes from me, belongs to me, and you are offering a portion back, the portion that I've stated. You're offering it back to me. Let's celebrate. It's almost like a little mini version of the prodigal son, you know? Not that they've been prodigal, but they come and God says, let's, let's have a party. Now, what's left over after the party? Because you've got to think, right? If you, <laughs> 10% of the nation's income, right, coming, you're not going to exhaust all that in one party, you know. It did go on for, about, I think, a week. Um, so it was quite a party. But um, the, what was left over went to the Levites and the priests, okay? It supported the, the, the temple worship, also the poor, okay? And we see that, actually, in the rest of the Deuteronomy passage, verse 28, at the end of every three years, okay, so at the end of every three years, so year one, year two, bring it to the temple, have the party. But in the third years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns, within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. That you do. So, 
Every third year, the tithe didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. It stayed in the towns. It was given to the local Levites. They were like the, the pastors uh, of the towns. And then it was given to the poor and the helpless. Okay, that's where it went. And, and so really, this is the rhythm. Okay, this is the rhythm. It's celebration and care for the needy. Celebration and care for the needy. You know, this, it's this, this rhythm, this boom, boom. That's God's heartbeat. You've got to have both. God's heart is both celebration and caring for the needy. When our heart beats that way, we learn to fear God. Verse 23, right? So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. Part of tithing is putting him, giving him the honor that he's due, realizing that everything comes from him. Everything. So we learn to fear him when we give, and then God blesses us in all of our work. That's uh, verse 29, the last phrase there, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. So God bless us because we're using his resources as he's asked us to. So that's the Old Testament on tithing. Now in the New Testament, it's interesting, we see the exact same thing. Okay, the purpose of giving in the New Testament to the same thing, just like in the Old Testament was to support the Levites, the New Testament, partly it support the pastors. First Timothy five seventeen and 18. Let the elders who rule well be, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labor deserves his wages. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9 is another passage where Paul just says that it's legitimate and appropriate and right for pastors to be paid for the work that they do. Okay, and so that fits with the the tithe going to the Levites. Also, the giving went to the poor. Acts 4, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so what we see here is that the purpose of the tithe didn't change. And the practice didn't change. The tithe goes to support pastors, the ministry of the church, and the needy in the community. So we go from Old Testament then to New Testament. All right, our third point. Our third point is old religion versus new relationship. I think there are a lot of people, and sometimes, you know, it, sometimes it can be the church's fault, um, who feel like when the church asks for money, it's kind of like taxes. Okay? It's like you're giving your taxes. The church just sort of lines up right behind the IRS, and, and it's trying to collect its fair share. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, here, like, the problem that I think I have with, with most, well, the, the frustration that I experience with taxes is that usually I don't know where the money goes or if I do know where it goes, I'm not exactly sure that it's, it ought to go there. Um, and then I don't really see the impact of the money that, that, that I give in, in my taxes. And those things are sources of frustration. I think there are wonderful things that our tax dollars go to. Um, so I'm not entirely frustrated with all, with all taxes. But, um, and, and I feel like religion feels a lot of that same way. It basically just says, look, just give and shut up about it, right? Give because I said to, and the Bible says to, and, you know, don't ask any more questions. It's, it's, you know, this is just your deal. 
And as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? That is not what Jesus calls us to. You know, he doesn't call us to religion. He calls us into a relationship with him, right? Where he is actively involved in our lives, where he, is, he wants us to be actively involved with what he's doing in the world, right? That's what Jesus is calling us to. And so Jesus is looking for a partnership in the gospel. He's looking for a partnership in the church and your giving is part of that partnership. And so as I was thinking, I thought, well, you know, I want to give you a sense of how the church spends your tithes and your contributions. I want you to know where your money goes. And so I want to give you an overview of, of what happens. So here's what we do. With the money that, that we collect, first and foremost, 10% of the money we give away. Okay? So out of every you know, $100 that comes in, we give $10 of that away. We actually practice a tithe as a church. Now, for us at Harbor, we give 10% to our church planning center. Okay? We do that because we want to see more churches more Harbor churches planted. And so we give, we tithe from the income that we receive as a church. We tithe it to the church planning center so that we can see the vision of Harbor grow. So we can see the influence of Harbor. So we can see the sites we want. Our hope is to plant a hundred Harbor sites over the next 25 years. And so that's part of how we contribute. So even if you, well, so 10% of the money that we give or that we receive, we give away to see churches planted. With the rest of the 90%, 36% goes toward what we call operations. Okay, operations is worship facilities. So that would include um, you know, the, this facility that we worship in, paying the rent for that, um, sound system, equipment, all the stuff, refreshments, the things that, make, um, th- that, uh, that help us to be here on Sunday. Okay, and then office space. Right, the rent for our office, printing, postage. When you get mailers from us, I mean that that's paid from this portion. So phones in the office, like all the office stuff, operations, and then ministry budgets, ministry budgets. So the things that fund our faith and work, the things that fund the ministries, our children's ministry, the things that fund our you know our mercy and our care teams. Those things are part of where your money goes. And so we, that's operations. And that leaves 54%. And with that remaining 54%, that goes to staff. Okay? We invest in our staff. And so that's pastors. So it's Dick. It's me. It includes paid staff, our site directors, our faith and work directors, administrative support. I mean, you understand. So, and, and the good news of not having a building right? Being here in a theater is that we can invest most of your tithes and contributions in people and in ministry, you know? And for us, our heartbeat is that we would be in the kind of people that we'd be investing in aren't people that will do ministry, but are people who will equip you to do ministry. Okay. Ephesians four says that God gave gifts of officers, of the church, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. <clears throat> and so evaluation time, when you look at the people who are being paid, one of the questions I want you to ask is, is this person helping our church and helping me to become a better minister? If you are not walking closer with Jesus because of, the, because of me, for instance, then I'm not doing my job, okay? If you are not, um, if you are not, 
being more of the hands and feet of Jesus in your neighborhoods, in your communities, with your families, with your coworkers, then we're not doing our job. Like our calling as paid staff in a church is to equip you so that you become better ministers of Jesus to other people. That's what we're holding ourselves to. That's the standard that, that I hold myself to. I want you all to grow. I want you all to grow deeper in love with Jesus and better able to serve him and the people that he's called you to minister to in the world. So, that, so that's, that's how we spend the money that comes in. Now, I know with the economy being what it is, um, things are tight, and I just want you also to know that we are doing everything we can to trim our budget in every place that we can. Um, and so just some practical things, like we found a new supplier for paper that's going to save us about $400 this year um, in terms of operating costs. Um, we, we have options with parking. We're, we're walking a little bit farther f- to the office from where we park saving us another five or six hundred dollars during the course of a year i mean so we're looking at things and we're trying to i mean because every little thing makes a difference and um good news on this is that you know i asked jackie for the report and she said that um that from january through april we are fifteen thousand dollars under budget with our expenses okay so that means that as a church we are making decisions that have caused us to spend fifteen thousand dollars less than we had budgeted to spend and so I just, I want you to know that as we ask you to be faithful in giving, this is just more communication than in four months, we are, we've taken a significant chunk out of what, our, what we budgeted to spend. So we're doing our part as well, okay? We're not just asking you to give and live in high off the hog or anything like that. You know, we are also doing what we can to trim um, what we've got. So the good news about all this stuff is that, to me, we're giving to the church planning center. We're funding operations and ministry budgets, and we're bringing people. And we're we're supporting people who are doing really one thing. Okay, everything that we do, it's about one thing. It's the gospel. Okay, it's all about the gospel. Everything, every dollar, either goes to someone who's proclaiming the gospel or to support the proclaiming of the gospel or to support helping you understand, experience, and then proclaim the gospel. Okay, that's everything that we're doing. And that really is what makes us unique. I mean, to me, this is the kind of thing that makes me think, well, it made me think, I'm not just going to give 10%, but I'm going to give my whole life to this. You know, that's... Because it's all about what Jesus has done for us, right? This is the message that we're trying to get into San Diego, that what Jesus has done for us opens up an avenue for us to meet with God, teaches us that we can be assured of his love, his care, and his forgiveness, right? Jesus has done for us what we could not do. He has saved us. He has given us assurance. He has given us comfort and real, lasting, abiding peace. He puts us on a rock so that in the instability of our world, we can rest on him. That's what he's done for us. And then what he does in us, he is changing us. And I see this happening. I mean, the good news is we don't just talk about it, but downtown, this site, Harbor 
is this amazing place where real transformative community is happening. The way you all love each other, the relationships that exist, the kinds of folks who have been ministered to, who have, have seen real radical healing come in their lives, where folks who have felt um, exhausted by religion have found a place to rest. Folks who have felt like Christianity is all about do, do, do have found a place at harbor where they can hear that it's been done. And there's real, as your lives overlap, I see, I hear the stories that people's lives are being transformed. And that is, it's the work of Jesus in us. It changes how we view the law. It changes everything. It changes who we are. And then, you know, the gospel is that it's what he's done for us, it's what he does in us, and then it's what he does through us. Every dollar that you give, you are supporting and growing an influence that sees that the gospel is big enough to transform all of San Diego and Tijuana. It's not just individual hearts, although that is glorious enough. It means that it affects our workplace. It affects our jobs. It affects who we are in every area of life. It affects our communities. It affects how we feel about um, the ostracized, the oppressed, the persecuted, the poor. It changes everything. We're going to talk so much more about, about this even next week as we, as we think about the advancing the vision stuff. But I, just, I, I want you to know that every dollar that you contribute means that this influence goes forward. And we are on the map. Okay, we are, as a church, we are looked to by other churches in San Diego. We are being asked to provide leadership with other churches, but also even with other government situations. We are at the table in different ways with volunteers. We're at the table in different ways, um, sitting and, and, and offering godly biblical advice and wisdom on how the city ought to be shaped and the decisions that the city ought to make. Um, and so when you, I guess I just, I just say that because I feel like without any sort of equivocation, I can, I can tell you that I, I think what we're doing is truly God's work, that we are following after what he's doing in San Diego, and God is blessing the ministry. He is blessing your gifts. He is blessing your commitment. And I know, too, that there are a number of you that give far more than 10%, you know, because <laughs> you're so caught up, right, with the vision. You, this is the vision you want to see go forward. And so, yeah, sometimes it calls us to do not just 10%, but with the extra 90, you say, you know what? I can give more out of this extra 90 that's mine to the Lord. I can give 20, 30, you know. I heard a story of someone who's given over 50% of their income to the work of the church, you know, that's not the standard for everybody, you know, but, um, you know, and I think it's good with percentages because oftentimes, sometimes it's the poorer folks that give more percentage-wise, you know, which is good to know. So I just, I guess I just want to end by um, recognizing that I know some of you understand this stuff. I know that some of you have been walking with the Lord and have had good teaching in terms of giving, and you understand this. And then there's some of you that, for whom this is the first time you've ever come into contact with biblical teaching on giving. Y'all need to get together. 
if you feel like you understand this already, then find someone who doesn't. In your community group, on a ministry team, out in the lobby, friends, relationships here in the church, because there are folks that are struggling to make this stuff work, that want to get there and are having a hard time, that need a plan to how to get to this place where they feel like they can honor the Lord with their money. And so if you are in that place where you understand these things and, and are walking in them, please, please, please look and try to find other people that you can help bring along in this process. That's part of what we do as a church. It's part of the joy. Um, and, I, and then, okay, I think I've said finally like six times already, but um, if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, if you're not walking with the Lord, I'm not sure what you think about it when you walk into a church and you hear about giving. Um, I've felt really uncomfortable in a lot, a lot of times when the church talks about giving. All of our giving is about Jesus. It's all about getting this good news out, that Jesus has lived the life that you couldn't live. He's been perfect, and he's been perfect for you. As far as God's concerned, all of us have sinned, and he's willing to forgive you and enter into a relationship with you if you'll trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for you. If you trust in him, he'll raise you from the dead and begin the process of transforming the things that are broken and need healing within you. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we do come with great joy in our hearts. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that the gospel just continues to give and give and give. Your work for us, your work in us, your work through us. Lord, we we want to experience even more of it. And so we ask that you would, uh, <clears throat> that you would continue to deepen our understanding of you and our, and our relationship with you. Draw us into deeper love for you and help our giving to reflect that. Help our giving to be a real partnership with you. And even as we think about our money, Lord, we pray that you would help us use our time as well as our energy, our talents, to serve you as we love each other in the church and as we love the world. We pray this in your name. Amen.